You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. All right. We're going to look at uh, the grand story of Scripture. Now, the reason why we're putting this in, in, in your notes at this point is because if we get right into how to read the Old Testament and, and, and the different parts of the Old Testament and the different parts of the New Testament, I mean, it's, it's very important. But the danger is, is you can you know, lose track of the forest by looking at the trees, right? And so we need to rem- remember uh, the, the, the overall story of Scripture. Now, some of you, last year, you heard me kind of walk through this a little bit. I'm going to go through it very quickly. But we need to keep uh, in our minds the overall story of Scripture, right? Otherwise, you just get so, you can really get bogged down, right? So the overall, how is, how is the story revealed to us? This is from uh, N.T. Wright. This is his, um, um, this is one of the ways he's able to uh, express the overall story of the Bible, which I think is a very helpful way, uh, paradigm or, or framework for understanding Scripture. And that is to look at the Bible as an unfinished five-act play. Scripture is a story. It is a story of the the God of the universe revealing himself to us, um, rescuing us when we cannot rescue ourselves. And Scripture begins with the first act, which is on God's good creation. So act one is very very straightforward. We see that right in the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so we, we begin with God's good creation. God creates, and what God creates is good. Because God is good. And so, um, when you see a, you know, the, the quote that I love by G.K. Chesterton, he says, the problem with an atheist is he'll see a sunrise and he'll be overwhelmed with a sense of wonder, a sense of awe, a sense of thankfulness, but he'll have no one to thank. Right? And, and, and that, I, I lived that m- myself one time. Uh, when I was an atheist, I was on the top of Taishan Mountain in China, saw this beautiful sunrise, and I was overwhelmed with this sense of wonder and awe and thankfulness, but this sense of despair, because I thought, there's no one to thank. But that sense of thankfulness comes from somewhere. Um, God has written eternity into our hearts, and, and he has revealed himself in his good creation. Again, it is a lot easier to see that here in Vancouver than it is in Saskatchewan, but apparently even there, you can get a sense of God's good creation. All right? Okay, the second act, act two, is, 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 is something goes wrong, right? God's good creation is marred by rebellion. Um, rather than submitting to God, uh, humanity wanted to be like God. And it's a recurring story in the history of humanity of people wanting to take the place of God. And it can be re- reduced to that. Um, G.K. Chesterton, again, was invited... Um, or there was the, uh, a contest in the Guardian newspaper in England, and people were to write in uh, their comments of what they thought was wrong with the world. So the question from the editor was, what's wrong with the world? And everybody had to write in what they thought was wrong with the world. And G.K. Chesterton wrote on his letter, what's wrong with the world? Chesterton wrote, I am. That's all he wrote. Because he recognized that there's something in the human heart. There's something bent. There's something broken. And uh, there's something wrong with the world. And if... <laughs> It's one of the most empiric- empirically verifiable doctrines of, of Scripture that, that there's sin in the world. You don't have to look very far. Okay? 
The third act is, um, is, is, is the story of Israel. And it is, is God stepping in and God calls the people to himself. And he calls the, this people to be the light of the world. He calls the people to be a unique people, to, um, to uh, express, to reflect God's kingdom purposes. Um, they are called to be a light of the world. Uh, it, 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 the calling begins with, with Abraham. And, it, and, and God makes a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, saying that through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. Through your offspring, all the uh, nations of the world will be blessed. And so God creates a people unto himself. And, um, but rather than being a light to the world, uh, the, the nation of Israel did two things. They, they, they wanted, one, keep the light to themselves. And secondly, um, rather than affecting the nations around them, they became infected by the practices of the nations around them. And so, um, so there's consequences to that. And as you go through the Old Testament, there's a growing realization that, that something is wrong. It's something that must be done. And there's this growing realization, especially as you read the prophets, that God himself is going to step in. That, there, that God himself is going to step in. That, that um, there will come a day, there will come a day where the true Israel will come. And, uh, and, and the true Israel the true light of the world will, will um, fulfill the promise that God gave to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12, okay? And of course, a person who does that, uh, that leads us into Act 4, is the story of Jesus. And uh, this is the climax of the story. It was on the cross that Christ bore our sins through his life, death, and resurrection and ascension. Um, we have been rescued that, that uh, the consequences of the separation, the consequences of our rebellion um, have, has been paid for once and for all, that the, 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 uh, the, the consequences of, of sin, the wages of sin, which is death, was paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. And so all the things that separate us from being in a relationship with God have been dealt with once and for all by God, the tr by, by Jesus Christ, the true Israel, stepping into the world. And so that's, that's the story that, that is told. And it, it, it really, it is the crux of the matter, literally the crux of the matter. Uh, the cross is at the center of our faith. And um, I remember John Berridge, the 18th century uh, um, pastor, he says, you know, when you can't stray away from this. This is the beginning, this is the center, this is the end. This is, this is where, as Christians, we need to linger. It is... It is the cross of Christ that changes everything. And that we who are on the outside have been brought in. We've been, we who are far away have been brought in to a relationship with the living God of the universe to the point that we could call God Father and we could be his adopted children uh, through faith by his grace. So that's the story. Now, here's the thing. Then we get to the fifth act. And the fifth act is partly told. We see um, in... Um, in the book of Acts, how the church is, is, is playing out. Um, but here's the thing. You and I are left uh, to improvise the fifth act. Because, I don't know about you, when you read the Bible, you're not going to find anywhere in the Bible where it mentions embryonic stem cell research. It, it, it's not. You're gonna nowhere in the Bible is 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 it gonna talk to you about casinos, uh, cocaine? I don't think it's written here, right? Um, 
there's a lot of issues that you and I face just in our day-to-day life that's not written in the Bible. But that's why we need to know the story well. If we know the story well, if we know Scripture well, what it does is it helps us, it empowers us, it equips us to navigate our way in life as Christians. And we use the story of Scripture, God's revelation to us, to teach us how to deal with stuff that comes up in our life. But it's an unfinished act because it's still being played out, right? It's still being played out until Jesus returns. But we have to live a life um, going on what God has revealed to us about himself, who he is, and what's more, about his kingdom, about the kingdom of God and what it means for you and I to participate in what God is doing in Coquitlam here and now. Okay? And so that's, that's the story. And, and, and we need to do this because... Uh, as we do exegesis, as we do hermeneutics, it's easy to get bogged down in the details and you lose track of the overall story. So do not lose track of the overall story. This is the story into which we are invited. This is the story of all stories, according to J.R.R. Tolkien. And so when we do our exegesis, when we're studying scripture, make sure you keep the overall picture of God's grace, his love, his kindness, his invitation to us, his great sacrifice through his son, Jesus Christ, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit who lives and dwells within us, guiding us. Keep that first and foremost in your mind because that will help you not to get lost as we, uh, as we look at different parts of the Bible. Okay, does that make sense? All right, so now let's jump in to how to read the Old Testament for all its work. When I first became a Christian, I didn't read the Bible much or think about the Bible much. And then my faith kind of reflected that. It was pretty weak. I didn't really know what I believed or why. And I started to feel pretty bad about that. And so I got involved in a campus ministry that, where I found someone to disciple me. And she really focused on the importance of the Bible. So I began to read the Bible, probably half an hour to an hour a day. Began to memorize scripture. I'd read through the whole Bible every year, probably, or even faster. So... I read the Bible over and over again for about the next four or five years, maybe next three or four years. And as I began to read it, I began to, God began to change me, I began to understand who God was. But also what happened is I started to have some questions come up. And especially when I read the Old Testament, how does this make sense? How does this fit into who God is? And these questions started to eat at me, and I'd bring them to my staff team, and I'd say, you know, I was reading this morning about, you know, whatever, Elijah, this makes no sense. And then they, they'd all get really upset at me and tell me, stop asking your questions, Marty. And so these questions started to make me start to doubt my faith because I couldn't make sense of some of the things I read, especially in the Old Testament. And so I began to think about what am I going to do because I love God, I want to have faith. And so that's when I decided to go to Regent. And I decided to go because I wanted to actually understand how these things all made sense. And... And I think as I went to region, I began to learn about how to read the Bible, how to understand the Bible. And I think some of the problem before was the way I was taught about how to understand the Bible was very rigid. It was like, these are the rules and this is how it fits. And things in the Bible didn't fit into those rules and it started to cause me problems. So for me, learning how to read the Bible well really saved my faith, to be honest. It saved my understanding of God and I still love the Bible, I still read the Bible, I still memorize the Bible and it still speaks to me, but I read it in a very different way than I did when I was 20. And so some of that, um, and also I just want to tell you that I am, my mother is a 
a strong believer. She led me to the Lord, and she loves the Bible as well. My mom could read the Bible for 50 years and never have the questions I had. She just reads it and speaks to her, and that's all she needs. So I want us, each of us is different. God has made each of us differently. Some of us will want more answers. Some of us will not want more answers. And so today what I'm going to talk about hopefully is helpful to you and not harmful to you. Uh, but, but I think, again, it's, it, it's helpful when you are mentoring or working with other people. If you're fine to just read the Bible and you don't have questions, but you're going to work with people who do. And so I think it's important, whatever level you're at, to actually be able to answer other people's questions as well and not be like the people who worked with me and just said, stop asking your questions. <laughs> so, so, so first we're going to start with Old Testament narrative, which is actually my favorite. And 40% of the Old Testament is narrative or story. And so that's a huge part of it, and it actually a huge part of the New Testament as well. So understanding how to read the story is a very important part of understanding scripture. And so the books that I've listed here are the main um, book, the books that are mostly narrative. So you can see how many of those are. Um, mo those are mostly story, and then there's story found in almost every other book. So it is really important to understand how to read the story of the Bible. So again, back to my favorite, Walter Brueggemann, his quote on this, and he talks about reading the narrative of the Bible. He says, it's about joining another history, being an insider, having memories and stories that others cannot envision, and identify an identity and vocation that others do not know. So how many of you have sat down with your grandparents, or your great-grandparents, and said, you know, tell me your stories, and they tell you their stories about their life, and it connects with you, and you know that that's your story too, like how my grandfather came from Italy to Canada and where he settled. That's part of my story. And that's what the Old Testament story is for us. It's actually part of our story. Our story is who we are as followers of Jesus. And so as we read narrative, it's important to read it as an insider. This isn't a book with stories for somebody else. This is actually stories for me. And so one of the things Brueggemann talks about, which I think is really important to remember, is that using your imagination is part of reading the Old Testament story too. Imagining yourself there, imagining yourself as part of it. It's not an intellectual exercise. It's actually an exercise to make God's story, the story of God from creation to now, our story and our reality. Okay. So, for instance, if we had time, I'm going to give you the scripture to read. Deuteronomy 26, 5-9 is the story of the people coming out of, the, out of Egypt and how God took his people out of Egypt. That's our story, too. It's the story of the big picture story of how God brought us when we were slaves to our own sin and to the sin of others and brought us out of Egypt into a relationship with God into this promised land of connection with Jesus. And so the Old Testament story is our story. Now, on the other hand, it's not our story, because we weren't there. And just like I wasn't in Italy, you know, working on a farm like my grandfather with a grade three education, that, you know, I didn't, I don't know what that's like. There's two, there's a tension, right? So, I, he, you know, I come from him, but his story and, and I are separate, because, you know. So I think when you're reading the Old Testament, you also have to remember what David was talking about, the five-act play. You have to remember what part of the story it is, right? Where are we, where are we in this five-act play? What is God doing here? And where is God taking us? So you've got the big picture and then the small picture of how God's speaking to you through it. 
these are some things that narrative is not. And I've, I mean, I think we've all sat under teachers of the Bible and heard things where we're like, huh, that's interesting. I remember going to a conference, which was a great conference. The, you know, the Holy Spirit was really working, but the preacher got up and she started talking about uh, the story of uh, um, J the well where um, Isaac's, where the servant of Abraham went to find Rebecca to make, to bring her home to Isaac. And she allegorized the whole story, like the well was the Holy Spirit, and the servant was, I don't know, I can't even remember who the servant was, like the Christian, and Rebecca was Jesus, and you know, you're on this whole thing that wasn't even the story. That's not what Old Testament is, narrative, is about. It's not about symbols, symbols that there's some deeper meaning that we have to figure out. Where is the Holy Spirit in this symbol? So, does that, so don't, if you hear that, that's not how we read the Old Testament. We also don't read it like a moral lesson. Okay, so, I mean, all of us went to Sunday school too, right? A good friend of mine is a really, she's a, a children's pastor at Tenth, and she's very committed to teaching kids the scriptures. And she went down to this conference on, on how to run Sunday schools, and someone brought out a lesson on Daniel. And it was a kid's lesson, and it was actually the lesson of, the, of Daniel 1 was how to eat healthily. And uh, <laughs> you know that Daniel abstained from food to be holy, to stay connected to the Lord, and not so he was healthy. Though he was healthy in the end, that was a good thing. But the purpose of Daniel 1 was not on we should all eat healthily. It's not little moral lessons that we can pick up. And also it's not explicit teaching the narrative. So for instance, you remember the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife came to him and wanted to have sex with him and he flees to get away. Well, the purpose of that story, again, is not to teach us how to deal with sexual temptation. Now, we can, it's an illustration of how to deal with sexual temptation. That's a, a good idea, when you're, but that's not the purpose of the story. So we're not reading it in the same way we might read the epistles. We're not reading it with the questions of, you know, what, what, is, what, what does this mean and what am I supposed to do now? That's not how we read narrative. That's very different than the epistles. Okay, so, so those are ways not to read it. So here is more about how to read it. First of all, we need to understand, as I said, the big story. When we come to the story, we need to say, how does the story of David being um, called to be king of Israel, how does that fit into the big story? Okay, so we, we have that big framework in when we're going at it. Where are we in the history of redemption? And how does this connect with the ultimate calling of Jesus? So those are some questions you might be asking. And then you might ask in the Old Testament, how does it fit in with the act we're in? So remember in act number two, act number three, right? Act number three of God calling the people of Israel to himself to bless them and to be a light for all the nations. How does this story fit in with the act that it's in? So we're looking at the big story. We're looking at the next story. So then what is the little story? So the little story is the actual narrative. So Joseph's story is his little story of him being um, you know, sold to slaves, going down to Egypt, and becoming second in command to Pharaoh. So that's the little story. And again, we have to look at what, what happens in that story and how does it fit in again with the big story. Okay. Now, we have to understand who the protagonist is in Hebrew stories. So... I don't know, I guess I'm using a technical term. Protagonist is like the hero. Who is the hero? And God is always the hero. 
David is not the hero. You know, Joseph is not the hero. God is the hero. And that's an interesting thing about Hebrew narrative is it's always going to expose people's flaws. Everyone, no one's safe except for God. <laughs> Everyone's going to be shown that, you, you know, David's not the hero. Look how he screwed up. You know, Joseph was kind of arrogant with his brothers when they came back. So the only hero in the, in the Hebrew narrative is God. And then the final question we're going to ask is who is missing? And one of the things you need to pay attention to in Hebrew narratives is the narrator. And the narrator is not the writer. The narrator is the person, is the the one telling the story. And so in Hebrew narrative, it's always third person. So that there's, it's never like a person, I went to this place and I saw what was happening. The narrator is always telling the story from the third person point of view. And the narrator doesn't usually comment on what's happening. So he's not going to give you a lot of opinion on what he thinks is happening or she, whoever the narrator is, that it's usually from the masculine voice. So you're not going to know what the narrator thinks. If the narrator ever gives you a clue of what he thinks, pay attention to it. So, for instance, in, in 2 Samuel 11, we have David and Bathsheba. The narrator's just telling the story of what happened. And at the very end of 2 Samuel 11, does anyone remember what it says? It says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So that's the narrator's voice. And the narrator is telling us, which is unusual in Hebrew writing, that David did something wrong. I think the narrator couldn't resist because it was so bad he had to give his comment in there. <laughs> Let's throw it in. But the narrator's point of view is, is usually God's point of view in the Hebrew narrative. So if the narrator gives comment like that, you can trust it. That's, that's a commentary on how God is viewing the story. So that... Yeah, as you read the story, you're going to just ask yourself the question, who, where is the narrator in the story? What's the narrator thinking? What's the narrator trying to tell me? How did that get so small? You're right. Okay, I sent this to David. It was big, but now it's small. So here are some things you need to pay attention to, and I'm going to give you at the end of this a little chance to practice, because if you don't practice, you'll never remember it. But Hebrew narrative goes back and forth between action and dialogue. And so think of action as moving quickly. You can tell a story, you could tell three years of a story in a chapter of the Bible, right? Just going really fast, and then Joseph did this and this and this. But what dialogue does, it'll slow the story down. So the action's happening really fast, and then dialogue stops. And the dialogue will slow the story down and go into detail about what's happening. So when the story slows down, you need to pay attention to what's happening. Because something important is happening, and that's why the story has slowed down to dialogue. So pay attention to dialogue. It's really important. And you'll notice, uh, well, I'll talk about this later. In scripture also, when you look at the dialogue, it's usually direct speech. You'll almost never see, you know, David said to me the other day that he went shopping with his kids. It'll say, and David said, yesterday I went shopping with my kids. Okay, so it's almost always direct speech where they're quoting someone. And even when the um, character is thinking, it'll think it. And David thought, hmm, I should take my kids shopping. That's how it'll go. Not, and David was thinking about taking his kids shopping. So, again, it's usually direct speech. So if you move into indirect speech, pay attention again. Why is it switching to direct, indirect speech? So, for instance, in the story of David and Goliath, Goliath's speech is given as indirect speech. What, and so why might that be? 
probably because Goliath is an infidel. <laughs> He's an evil guy, and they don't want to give him any attention, right? So they qu they don't quote Goliath. They just kind of say Goliath was saying these things, and and then they go on. So direct speech is the norm. Indirect speech is not the norm. Also, dialogue again with dialogue. It's important to look at the dialogue. If you look at there'll be con the Hebrew stories will use contrasting dialogue. So if you think of the story of Esau and Jacob. And you look at their dialogue back and forth. Jacob comes across as really smart, and Esau comes across as really dumb. And so, for instance, when he says, you know, he's really, remember when he's really hungry, he comes in from hunting, and he's going to sell his birthright, and, he's, and Jacob's been cooking up a lovely stew. He says, you know, give me some of that red stuff. And uh, because he, you know, can't even get the words out. He just looks really stupid, right? And so, again, that dialogue is trying to show us something about Jacob, and something about Esau. So pay attention to the dialogue and see what's happening. Secondly, thirdly, remember there's an oral context to the Old Testament stories. They were probably told orally before they were written down. And so, you know, people sitting by the campfire and they tell the story of Joseph and, you know, it goes back and back and back. So oral story tradition is different than written story tradition because oral story tradition will use key words or repeated words and concepts so that people can remember the story. And so a lot of the Old Testament narrative will seem very repetitive when you read it, but it's because it was originally spoken. So again, first of all, when you're, remember there's going to be a lot of repetition, partly, partly, partly because it was given in oral context, but partly because that is the way Old Testament narrative brings out what's important. So for instance, they'll use key words. And the key, for instance, in 1 Samuel 15 is a story of Saul when he was told to go kill the Amalekites. And he, he, instead of killing them, he takes all their sheep and he brings them back. And then, you know, the question is, what is that bleeding of sound after he tells God he killed all the sheep? And in that te text, the words are repeated over and over, listen word and voice. Those are repeated over and over in the story because Saul didn't listen to the voice of the Lord. So the story uses those key words to bring out Saul's sin and then Saul is cut off as king of Israel. That's how Hebrew um, narrative will do it. Also Hebrew narrative uses a lot of wordplay. It uses words that sound the same. Now the problem for us in English is the words don't always sound the same to us because we're reading in English and not Hebrew. But for instance, in Genesis 2, it uses a lot of wordplay. Did you know that the word earth is Adama? What does that sound like? Adam. So the human comes from the humans, the earthling from the earth. And the word that's used for, in the end, where it says, you are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, you shall be called woman, for you came out of man. The word that is used there for man is ish. And the word for woman is a shot. So the earthling is connected to the earth. The woman is connected to the man. The ish, the shah comes from the ish. So the, those words that sound the same in that story are trying to show the connection. The connection between the man and the earth. The connection between the woman and the man. So that story is about this, who comes from what and what kind of connection and relationship they have to each other. So the Hebrew will use words that sound the same to convey meaning and to show connection. And again, the, that's, that might be hard. That's where an interlinary can help. You can see them. Or, but if you read a commentary, they'll also tell you what those words are. 
Often in Hebrew narrative, there'll be repeated themes. For instance, in Genesis, one repeated theme throughout the whole book is the reversal of primogeniture. Now, that's a big term. Primogeniture means the first inherits everything. So the firstborn son gets it all. But throughout the whole book of Genesis, the firstborn son is always passed over and someone else is chosen, which is an interesting theme, right? And you wonder why. Why that? I wonder what it's showing about God and showing about people. God's not sticking to the the conventions of society when he chooses who will be his person to carry on the line of Jesus. So, um, and then lastly, in the dialogue, there will be a lot of repetition in dialogue. I mean, if you've read Hebrew narrative, you'll know that, oh, this person's saying exactly the same thing again, you know, three times, you know. The whatever the you know the servant will say it and then the next person will say it and the next person will say it and you're like well, this is just annoying to read but if you actually look closely at the dialogue you'll notice that there are going to be small changes most of the time when that dialogue is repeated pay attention to the small changes so for instance Naboth in the story of Naboth's vineyard when Jezebel kills Naboth it's repeated three times first her servant comes to her to report that Naboth has been killed, and then she repeats it, and it's repeated three times. And each time, the killing gets less and less specific until finally Jezebel reports it to Ahab and says, oh, Naboth is dead, and the vineyard is free. And each time, she's taking away responsibility from herself as the information is passed on. So it starts out, you know, I followed your instructions, we killed Naboth for you, and, and then in the end she looks innocent when she tells her husband. So those are the kind of things you'll look for in dialogue. When dialogue is repeated, what is the change in that? And why might the narrator have changed what was written? Again, it's not because he's a bad, you know, it's not for variation. Oh, this was sounding boring, so I'm going to add a little change. It's actually to convey some kind of piece of information. Okay. So then the characters in Hebrew narrative are also important to um, pay attention to. So how are the characters described? And in Hebrew descriptions, very little description, vi visual description will be given. I don't know if you read English novels, but I'm not a big descriptor lover. And you know, like it might be three paragraphs on who David is and what he's wearing and how he looks. In Hebrew narrative, it almost never describes a character like that. So for instance, if it says, Bathsheba was very beautiful. Hmm, pay attention. Or Nabal was a fool. Pay attention because it, it's unusual that they're giving us that much information and why. Interesting, in the story of Michal, Michal and David, um, if you remember, Michal was Saul's daughter and she was given to David. Um, it says that Michal loved David. That's interesting because that's the only time in the whole Bible that a woman is ever, a whole Old Testament that a woman is ever described as loving a man. Why would that be in the story? Interesting. So those are some things to pay attention to and to think about. Inter well, and I'll just give you my opinion on that. David wanted to marry Michal so he could be the king's son-in-law. Michal wanted to marry David because she loved him, but that's just my opinion on how things go awry in their relationship. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> You can look at when are people's names used, when are titles used, when are, how does that change. So all those kind of descriptors are important to pay attention to because they'll help us have insight into what's going on. Okay, 
So again, what do the characters say? Pay attention to that. What do they say outwardly? What do they say inwardly? Which is their thoughts. And again, it's going to be represented as dialogue. That'll tell us a little bit about the characters and who they are by what they speak out and what they think inside. How do they behave? Pay attention to that. And lastly, what does the narrator say about them? Again, the narrator will give very little comment on people. So if the narrator comments on someone, pay attention to it because that's important to know. And you can trust the narrator's point of view. The narrator's point of view is likely in Hebrew narrative God's point of view. Okay? So this, I'm going to give you guys a chance now to do a little bit of an exercise using that information. So before I do that, does anyone have any questions on what I said? <coughs> so it all sounds very complicated. It was interesting, I took a, um, as part of my Regent course, I took a seminar class on Hebrew narrative from a, a professor named Dave Dewart. And he is, I would like study the text and I think I figure out everything this text could possibly be saying. And then I go sit and I mean, Dave was just like, oh my goodness. And so again, this is look at the fish. You have to look at the story and look at the story and look at the story to try and understand what the story's about. And, and, and it'll show, I mean, for me, when I heard Dave teaching and really looking at what your narrative was about, it made a lot more sense. It made much more sense about why it was in the biggest story. Why was the story included? And what is it saying about God? And what is it saying about people? So it helps us to understand the purpose of it being in the scriptures as opposed to, oh, this is an interesting story. Which they are interesting stories, but they actually are stories with a point of view. Stories to help us understand who we are and who God is and how God connects to us. So what I want to do is give you guys this exercise, which I've got here. You can read 2 Samuel 12. Now, if you flip to your notes, the very back page of your notes, I've got 2 Samuel 12 there, and that's because you can actually write on it if you like. And if you want to do this alone, you can do it alone. If you want to do it in pairs, you can do it in pairs. If you want to do it as a table, whatever works for you. So I want you to answer these three questions. Um, how does... How does this fit into the largest story of the Old Testament? Where is God in the story? And what does the narrator think of David? And if you want, you can also look at the dialogue. I'd like you to spend a little time looking at the dialogue and just making any comments on that, what it reveals about the characters, what it reveals about David and Nathan. And only do up to, only do that first page. Don't move on to the second. There's some on the back, but just stick with the first three paragraphs there, or you can even just do the first two. So take about 10 minutes to do that. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.